Welcome to our newest adventure for first responder wellness. No one fights alone. In-depth conversations about mental health and culture in the first responder space. We're joined by your co-hosts, Austin Pedersen and Brad Shepard. Welcome back to No One Fights Alone podcast. Uh, once again, Austin, another amazing speaker, one of Chateau's very own today. I told you to stop feeding his ego. You know? Yeah, I think we'll see where it goes. His powerful presence. I love this guy. Talk a little bit about him. Stacy's talking. Uh, been with Chateau since 2017. I don't think I should be the one talking about it. Stacy, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks. Glad to be here. Tell uh, tell the listeners, and, and I know we're going to go into it a little bit because you have uh, such a unique background of how you arrived at this. But tell us a little bit about kind of where you're from, a little bit of background, how you how you got to Chateau. Sure. So I've been. Uh, I've been working in mental health since 1989. I got my first job in uh, recreational therapy back then. I was finishing my degree at the University of Utah, go Utes. Uh, took out my degree in history. Took me eight years to finish my four-year degree, which is another story that right my on. life doesn't like to talk about. Um, I've been <laughs> married for 40-plus years. Um, and I had a great uh, mentor. His name was Rick Otvos, O-T-V-O-S, uh, who helped me uh, to become licensed in recreational therapy, and uh, I've worked with adolescent treatment uh, through 2008. Um, in uh, 2005, I went back to school at the University of Utah and got my uh, training in, uh, back then we call it substance abuse call counseling, now it's substance use disorder counseling. So I'm a licensed in the state of Utah as a therapeutic recreation specialist and uh, an advanced substance use disorder counselor. And then in my 50s, I went back to school and got my master's degree, finally surrendered to the process of, okay, I guess I'm going to stay in this field and keep working in the clinical side and got my uh, degree in clinical mental health counseling. So I'm also a licensed clinical mental health counselor. That one didn't take eight years, though. No. Well, it's kind of funny. went out to dinner to celebrate afterwards and the the server says, well, congratulations, I'm finishing school. How long did it take? And I said, oh, three years. And my oldest daughter says, try 33 years. Yeah. You've been going to school for as long as I've been alive. And I'm like, mm, that's right. <laughs> you got me there. It's very accurate. Yeah. So it it, it took a long time, but uh, uh, I got my, uh, I finished school in 2015 and then started at Chateau in 2017. And this is the longest I've ever been at any one job. My wife likes to say she's worked for the same company for 30 years, go Delta Airlines. Um, uh, well, I've worked in the same field for 30 years, been able to, to go from job to job and take different opportunities because she's always carried the benefits. Um, but So every day at Chateau is a new personal best in terms of length of stay uh, with one employer as I've been here more than, more than six years now. When are you getting your Ph.D.? No, that's the real question. No, no way. I'm not going to get a PhD. I'd like to. I love learning. I love going back to school, but uh, I'm over 60 and I can't afford any more student loans. <laughs> you won't have to pay them. You know, you may die before Somebody, they're due. Somebody will have to pay them. That's You're right. staring my legacy at, uh, to my kids. Staring at moving from recreational therapy to just recreation. Right. Yeah. And, and that's an important part of what we talk about with people at Chateau is the importance of healthy play. Um, we, around here, we say uh, the opposite of play isn't work. The opposite of play is depression. So if I don't take time to help to do healthy play, if I don't take time to do recreation, right? If you take that word and break it down, recreation, it's a recreation of myself. 
And for most of us, our unhealthy kinds of play are risk-taking and uh, sedating or stimulating kind of behaviors that become unhealthy. So finding healthy play becomes an important part of our recovery, and that's how I kind of weave uh, recreational therapy into the into the the groups and individual sessions that we do here at Chateau, at least that I'm a part of. Let's spend a little, let me back up to that since you brought that back up. I, I was going to back up to this anyway. So tell us a little bit more about the recreational therapy, like what that, that there seems to be a uniqueness to how you engage with, uh, you know, the folks at Chateau. And is that a strong part of that background? That recreational therapy piece? For sure, right? The the body in motion stays in motion. Um, so a lot of my sessions are walk and talk. Sometimes we'll sit and talk. We'll do a couple session, uh, often via Zoom, as people are traveling from outside of state to come here. Um, but getting out, getting in the great outdoors, exercising our body, moving our, our body so our heart rate goes up, and we get the good neurochemistry, the endorphins that the body naturally produces and start to to rewire the brain. Um, for some people, spending time in nature is their higher power. We call that the the G-O-D, the great outdoors, um, and connecting with, uh, you know, there's a little spot where we sit where there's running water. There's um, spots where there are some ponds where we can watch nature and, and rewiring the hedonic set point, the, mid, the mid-brain pleasure center uh, through experiencing wonder and awe rather than the shock and awe that a lot of first responders have experienced in their career work or in their military service or growing up with other adverse childhood experiences. It's always got to be big doses of adrenaline and dopamine rather than learning to rewire the brain and being content with the small little shots of dopamine and adrenaline that we can get in nature and through healthy play and recreation. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give an example here. I don't know if I've ever told you I saw this from... Ben's office upstairs, but uh, we had a, it was maybe like the first two months that I was here, something like that. So this was five years ago. And uh, we had a client that was really, she was a tough client. She was dealing with a lot um, and it was coming out in some behaviors and anger and frustration. And uh, this was not Stacy's, you know, set client, right? But um, he... She was struggling, and I look out the window, and he had taken her for a walk and talk. I look out the window, and they're on the grass doing somersaults together (laughs) and rolling through the grass. I'm like, what is going on here? And, you know, at that time, I was working with everybody a a little bit more closely in the admissions, and I gave her a ride home, and she talked about how that was the turning point for her was doing somersaults on the grass. And this person, I can't remember, it must have been 35 or, or something like that. But that's the power of recreational therapy. That's that's kind of that that part that you wouldn't see normally. Right. Vanderkolk talks about it in The Body Keep the Score. Of we, we move our bodies. And pretty sure that doing somersaults wasn't my idea. I just said, hey, she was... A, connected with her little girl. And I'm like, what does your little girl need right now? She just needs to do somersaults. And so I'm like, okay, here we go. Let's do somersaults. And luckily, um, I'm still flexible enough because of recreational therapy and having lots of grandkids that I can do somersaults as well. And that that was just what she needed. So I was meeting her where she was at, what she would needed to do in that moment, um, and releasing trauma that way. Uh, because that's what, again, Vanderkolk talks about. He calls it yoga, 
but whatever it is that helps us to release the trauma, and it might be somersaults, and somersaults are often connected to martial arts, that kind of discipline and uh, training that can help us to channel our warrior energy in a healthy way, especially if I'm no longer serving as a first responder or military, how do I channel my warrior energy in healthy ways? And so it could be, you know, tumbling somersaults, gymnastics, or finding a dojo, a place where I learn those kinds of disciplines and training. It just, it, it seems, and I don't know if this is, you can tell me, but when, when you are talking to somebody to begin with, that's, that's not something that they ever think is going to be a part of the therapeutical process, right? They think it's going to be you, them lying down on a couch, you know, maybe with you sitting about your mother. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. With a little notebook, (laughs) you know, tell me how that makes you feel kind of thing. Right. Right. And so, I mean, do you see more success with people getting comfortable when they're not sitting in that room, in your specific room with maybe 800 books? Just <laughs> Well, the little library that they uh, allow me to have here at Chateau, again, Stacy Stocking, repressed librarian, um, <laughs> <laughs> recreational therapist, uh, for sure. Like even this morning, just doing a walking talk, a, a client's talking to me about some hard life experiences and they say to me, I'm so glad we're walking and talking right now because if we weren't, I'd be sitting in the office and probably blubbering. And this person has lots of strong uh, judgments about uh, emoting that way. And I'm saying, you could blubber now and it would be okay. And we can walk and talk about these things and not have to blubber. That's part of, again, the retraining of the brain, telling the whole story. And that's what this person was doing today, was telling me the whole story of a certain part of their life but telling it to me in a way where the neurochemistry is going in a good way. My heart is pounding in a good way rather than sitting in a chair and starting to panic. Is this person judging me, feeling overwhelmed by feelings and emotions, and therefore sometimes, you know, got to get the F out of the room, and that's why I stay away from the door in my office is so that they can get out because some of these people are big and fast. Don't want to block that door. And I'm over 60, and I can do somersaults, but I'm not as fast and quick as I used to be. But... Yeah, don't want to block the door, give people a, an exit if they need it. But when we're out walking and talking, there there is no exit, and it's a safe place. And again, it normalizes the experience as well, rather than some people's judgments around therapy of how it's supposed to look, sound like, what going to therapy means about me, that I'm weak because I'm vulnerable, I have to ask for help, especially in our first responder culture. So... By normalizing it, walking and talking, and sometimes we do stop and they need to cry, or there are certain spots where we sit where it's safe to cry, um, and and that's okay too. And if they don't cry, that's okay, but again, we're, we're rewiring the brain, reprocessing the stories as we talk about them in a different way. I love it. And, and there's got to be a pretty big transition for you from, you started in 88, did you say? 89. 89? Yep. So there's been a pretty big transition in substance use and mental health approaches since then. For sure, right? We know more about what's going on with the brain rather than making assumptions about what was going on with the brain. Um, you read stuff from the from the AA Big Book, I'm a person in long-term recovery, you know, and the assumptions that they were making back then, the doctor's opinion, now was rooted in science and understanding more about the the three tiers of the brain and how we're not running on our, our frontal lobes, we're running on our, our midbrain or even our brain stem and our, our autonomic nervous system. And so we're understanding more 
and looking at things through a trauma-informed lens rather than, say, a personality disorder lens or judging people by their behaviors. Well, uh, you know, Macaulay says, bad behavior, bad actor, and therefore people must be broken, and you should have more willpower. And it's not a question of willpower. It's a question of, you know, the phrase I say is that we don't come to Chateau because things are going well. We come because things are not going well, and we're all drain-bamaged, right? I'm so drain-bamaged I can't even say brain damaged, and I don't even realize what's going on because of substance use disorder or because of traumatic brain injuries or acquired brain injuries from too much trauma and drama, PTS, whether you like little d or big D, the disorder that it creates in my life, and hopefully starting to move into PTSG, the post-traumatic stress growth of this is how we come out of our armor, out of the shell that we put around ourselves because we don't want people to know our brain's not working like it's supposed to, that we're sad, depressed, anxious, and that stuff comes out sideways, a substance use disorder, hurting the people we love the most, dissociating, disconnecting, and sometimes you know, thinking about ending my life. And that's an important topic that people need to feel safe talking about as well, that you know, I'm thinking about where's the exit, whether it's slowly one shot of whiskey at a time or quickly one shot from my nine millimeter. You know, the, the, the point you bring out is so, so amazing there that, that we have grown so much through, uh, what we've learned about, uh, substance abuse and substance use, but your has your personal tactics of, of helping people because you're very passionate. You've been doing this over three decades and has this increase in knowledge changed the way you do recreational therapy as well? I mean, you're, let's talk a little bit about your personal diving into how you... The, the amazing thing is, and I don't present at conferences, but I, I sometimes think I should present, but then I'm just like, no, I'm too old, and <laughs> I let the young people do it. But the things we were doing in recreational therapy 30 years ago are the things we're doing in terms of mental health counseling today. Right. Things that, like, like creative arts, like movement, like play, are things that are now evidence-based practices. Validated. Right? Whereas before, it was kind of like, oh, those are just, you know, side disciplines to kind of fill time. And again, Vanderkolk talks about all of these things in terms of accessing the non-dominant hemisphere, um, in terms of even acting, talking about how using acting, uh, engaging in actual not psychodrama, but actual drama is a way that gets me out of my critical brain, out of my PTS brain, and gets me back into the present moment. And I'm experiencing, if I'm doing, like, say, Shakespeare, then I'm experiencing, uh, you know, real trauma and drama kind of stuff, like Hamlet, like uh, Macbeth, you know, and, and realizing some different perspectives while I act it out without reliving my own sense of shame or my own sense of betrayal or my own sense of, of uh, you know, what do I do now in terms of Hamlet? Hamlet's a classic example of, you know, I've seen a ghost, but am I crazy? I'm supposed to take revenge on this person, but am I really justified? And spoiler alert, you know, push pause, jump forward 10 seconds, you know, at the end, just about everybody dies except for one person who's left to tell the story of Hamlet. And so that's, that's what we're trying to do is learn through these other experiences. And it might be engaging in things that I never thought I'd engage in rather than I'm on the couch and talking more about my 
parental relationships. And there, there's a few of those things you do here, but, you know, I, w- I want to go into psychodrama because you mentioned it. We've never had somebody come on. Define what that is and what it really looks like because Brad thought those two words together didn't. <laughs> yeah. The first time I heard it, I thought it was the negative form of so I've, I've seen psychodrama. I think we all have. Right. We're thinking of relationship drama, right? <laughs> and how psycho they become or I become because of the drama. Um, I'll do my best. So psychodrama comes from uh, the work of Jacob Moreno. Uh, Moreno was trained in theater arts. He had what he called the theater of the spontaneity, allowing people to come up and to just engage in music and uh, voices and movement to express whatever it was they needed to express. He ran a a treatment center in in New York City somewhere, and it it kind of spread out from there as a modality of, of... acting out rather than in unhealthy ways, acting out our dramas and our traumas in healthy ways. Uh, You usually select someone, traditional psychodrama, you select someone to be your double, you're the director, um, people learn, and everybody's engaged, so it's a group process. Somebody comes in and plays the role of my mother or my father or my wife or my spouse or whatever it is that I need, and I direct them, uh, and there's to be that cathartic effect of seeing it from a different perspective by stepping back and directing it, hearing it from a different perspective. We don't do a lot of traditional psychodrama that way, but we do it in terms of of, of play and trying to look at things from a different perspective. Sometimes, I haven't done it for a while, but sometimes I'd have people stand on the hearth there in the group room and look at things from a different perspective or have somebody read a reality letter or an impact letter uh, it, for the person while they're looking at it from a different perspective and then seeing it uh, from a from, with new eyes, basically. And so psychodrama, uh, the person who's influenced me the most is uh, Tion Dayton out of New York. Uh, she wrote a book on experiential uh, therapy that I got and this model of how we do those kinds of things with warming up, getting into our body, um, and then moving through the process and then the, the debriefing process as well of, you know, what just happened, what does this mean, and what do we do with these kinds of experiences? The same kinds of things that we do when we're at, we're at the ropes course. The ropes course can be seen as psychodramatic moments of here's a problem, solve the problem, notice what happened, debrief what happened, and what does that mean in terms of the bigger picture rather than, well, that was cool. What does it mean in terms of my home life, my community life, finding my my passion, right, the fire in my belly in terms of maybe redefining my role as a first responder and uh, a member of the world that we all, you know, we're all part of 8.5 billion homo sapiens. Where do I find my place and my passion in terms of those kinds of things, you know, I'm glad I'm glad you brought up the the ropes because I was I was going to kind of direct us in that direction. The um, you know the I found it when when my um, while I was here in the ropes course, I found it so fascinating because I had done ropes course before, mm-hmm. but you actually draw on so many different lessons and then the uh, narration of explanation of what a life lesson could look like in that rose course. Is there, is there lessons in life that we just miss all the time? I mean, that was one of the things that I kind of looked at and said, am I just missing some of these lessons in life? Because 
Uh, I just need a little Stacy stocking in my back pocket every once in a while, pull him out and say, okay, what's the point of this? Because, you know, you're, you're walking across this thing, you're doing a team concept. And next thing you know, Stacy's drawing out this enormous life lesson. So does that make sense? What I'm asking? Yeah. Um, again, it's based on, you know, lots of experiences, 30 years of experiences and also getting up and doing those events myself. So rather than just saying, yeah, it is tough or yeah, it looks tough. It's like, no, I've walked across that bridge. I've climbed that, that wall. I know what it feels like to be suspended in midair by a, by a rope and wonder if that rope's going to continue to support me or feel the tension in my body where it does support me. Um, and sometimes in a good way and sometimes in a not so good way. Right, but 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 it's kind of the hero's journey of leaving the familiar. So when we go to the ropes course, we leave the familiar of chateau. We go to a new space, a new environment, and we get to learn new lessons. And we're always learning lessons. That's one of the rules for being human: is that if I'm still alive, there are still lessons to be learned. And how do I stay uh, alive to be more awake? So that then I can be aware of the possibility of this. Part of part of my journey has been, you know, learning to to say what's the lesson here when I'm uncomfortable. Seeing the person as the teacher, even though I want to blame them, you're you're an obstacle in way of my peace and serenity right now, or you're a vehicle. You're supposed to be getting me something right now. What's the lesson that this person is bringing me? And it's one of those old expressions, be careful what you pray for. You know, I pray for patience, and so then I get lots of adversity in my life. Opportunities to apply patience. Right, exactly. So be careful what you ask for, because the universe will provide. And it may show up in ways that I, I'm not prepared for, not the way I expected it to be. And so that can show up on the ropes course. That can show up in the group room. As a new member comes in, and they're not as far along as other group members, or they're still early in the recovery process, they may be seen as an obstacle and in the way of me getting what I want. And so I have to, again, look at them and say, okay, that person's being a teacher for me right now. How do I welcome the opportunity to learn? I may not be happy about it, but I can be grateful for the opportunity to learn from there, but for the grace of God go I. Maybe that's how I was two weeks, two months ago when I first got to Chateau. And I get to see myself through a different pair of lenses of, oh, Yep, that was probably me disrupting everybody else's flow. The lesson might not be pleasurable, but I can at least be grateful that I'm. That's right. I see it and can apply it. That's where gratitude comes back in, puts me back in the present moment, helps me to have compassion for others, and hopefully compassion for myself. It's the same thing at the ropes courses. I watch people struggle as I get frustrated because somebody wants to take control or somebody won't take control. How do I deal with those kinds of things in terms of learning opportunities? Everything's a learning opportunity if I can learn to adjust my mindset to to seeing it that way. Which is pretty difficult to do when you're in such a dark place and and you maybe have been there for so long that you just don't, those are unrecognizable. it's, It's growth versus fixed mindset, right? I'm not, I'm not teachable. I'm not worthy of being helped. Y'all don't know what you're talking about, but the reality is if I have a growth mindset, then I can learn from anybody. I can realize that I can uh, learn new things. The old expression is you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, that's not true, right? We're all old dogs and we can learn new tricks. And I have to be careful because I'm so drain damaged, I think, that I know exactly what's going on. And the reality is I don't know. And so I've got to stay open to that process. And AA, we call that how, being uh, honest, open-minded, and willing. So I got to be willing to do some things differently. 
You know, on that note, recently we were talking to Ben about uh, exposing yourself to risk and being willing to actually place yourself in that vulnerable position. Um, How do you encourage people to do that when you see that, when you see that they just need a little uh, nudge or maybe a big nudge, uh, creating that understanding, that safe space, that, that this is, this is going to be helpful Sure. There, there's a, a rapport building piece. They got you got to have a little bit of rapport with people to be able to trust you. And again, at the ropes course, I usually go first. I say, okay, this is what it looks and sounds like. Boom. There I went. Now, if I can do it, you can all do it. If I can trust all you all to take care of me, even though some of you are angry and upset with me, <laughs> <laughs> you guys can trust each other to go through this process. We, we call it the zones, right? There's the, the comfort zone at the middle. Outside that is the the next circle is the growth zone or the learning zone. Business models have taken this, and nowadays they say there's there's no growth in the comfort zone, except I like to say except for my pant size, and there's no comfort in the growth zone or the learning zone. And so if I'm getting too comfortable, again that's where we leave Chateau. We go to the ropes course. We go to the 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 castle for the for the workshops to get people outside of their comfort zone a little bit. Outside of that is that panic zone outside the learning and the growth zone that we want to try to avoid, but those are some edges that we reach when we start to assume the worst, catastrophize, um, you know, want to blame others and awfulize about certain experiences. I'm having those thoughts inside my head, my itty-bitty shitty committee starting to run the show, and so mm-hmm. learning to calm those kinds of voices and be back in the present moment and to take appropriate risks. Right? Take healthy risks rather than the unhealthy risks we're out there taking, including, you know, some people, again, they're, they're thinking they're looking for the exit. And so some of our first responders are out there. And they're not wearing their, their armor when they should. They're not going in with their bulletproof vests on. They're always being the first one through the door thinking, well, if I take a bullet, at least I'll die with honor, Right. Or they're not wearing their personal protective gear, whether they're responding to uh, an EMT situation or their nurses or whatever it is. They think, well, if I get sick, at least I'll die in the line of duty. I'll have a, an honorable death. And they need to be talking about, hey, I'm thinking that it's a good idea for me to not wear my vest. It's a good idea for me to always be the first one through the door. Well, what's really going on underneath all of that kind of stuff? Because that's inappropriate risk-taking. That's unhealthy risk taking that, you know, may be part of my depression, my anxiety, my post-traumatic stress, bigger or little D. Just continues to feed itself. Yep. Yeah. Right. And right, it's gonna ripple out because if something happens to me, then you know, I think I'm think I, I say a story inside my head, they'd be better off without me. Yeah, sure. And that is not yeah. the truth. Whoever they are, they still need you around. Even if you feel like you're not doing your best because you're so sick, you still stick around and get the help you need so you can come back to doing your best. Realizing your best is always going to be different day to day. That's some of that four agreements kind of stuff that the other uh, mindfulness teachers talk about. And for those that don't know, I think what Stacy just talked about when somebody, you know, doesn't wear their vest, that happens a lot more than people realize. Yeah. Yeah. Mm hundred percent. And I think that that's a huge turning point in any therapeutical relationship is when they trust you enough for you to to listen to. No, no, it does. Sure. They, they need you here. And that's the part about being trauma-informed. I think something interesting, um, I was talking to Ben about it also, which is, you know, the, the therapist's job is not to be the, the hammer. 
at all times. Right. Like that's, and that's a big change from 1988. Yep. Which is, you know, the therapeutical relationship is, is not to be the, you know, you're a piece of shit. You should, your behavior just did this, right? Like that's, that's not the relationship you have with people anymore. Right. No, it's, it's about, we talk about heart at peace versus heart at war. A lot of old school counseling was, was heart at war kind of stuff. It's my job to, to be the drill sergeant. It's my job to break you down and build you back up, uh, to shame you. I mean, most of our folks are shaming themselves enough. Yeah. They've broken themselves down enough to where we want to meet them where they're at and to help them to find their way to reinstate a strong sense of self, not in an egotistical, narcissistic, self-centered kind of way, but in a healthy kind of way. So I can be the parent I want to be, the partner I want to be, the person I want to be in the world that I live in. The No One Fights Alone podcast is excited to announce the launch of our new merchandise line. Now you can show your support for our mission by purchasing one of our hats, shirts, or hoodies. Our merchandise not only represents our brand and message, but also supports a great cause. A portion of all proceeds will go towards helping individuals and families affected by mental health. Wearing our merchandise not only spreads awareness for our podcast, but also serves as a reminder that no one has to fight alone. Join us in showing your support and spreading the message of hope and community by purchasing one of our No One Fights Alone items today from our website, nofapodcast.com, nofapodcast.com. Well, I think from, you know, and this is a very naive, uh, maybe uh, non-professional viewpoint of the therapy uh, interaction, but the, you know, there used to be a, it was behavior traits and thoughts, uh, and it seems to be much more core beliefs and values based. Um here at Chateau and, and other places around there's that seems to be transitioning as well. And you've been doing this a long time. Is that, is that consistent with the growth of interacting with, uh, uh, you know, people who are hurting, you know, really, really transitioning again to a much deeper, you know, we know more, there's more data, there's more result based information. Um, because we do a lot of belief work and a lot of value work here at Chateau. Yeah. And, and the goal is always to, to adjust our behaviors. So everything is based in that. That's where we see everything that mm-hmm. the outward expression of what's going on internally is our, our behaviors. So like acceptance and commitment therapy or cognitive behavior therapy or dialectical behavior therapy. It's all about how does this show up in my behaviors in the way I engage with life, engage with others you know, in rec therapy, our phrase is, you know, plays well with others. If you're not playing well with others, well, what's going on? And people like to say, well, I'm just an introvert. It's not my fault. Well, how can I still be an introvert and still play well with others rather than leaving a wake of other people going, what just happened and why is that guy acting out like that? Um, so it's, our, it, it's rooted in our behaviors, but it's also rooted in my values. And what is it that gives my life meaning and purpose? What's my why? And so that's a, that's a deeper dive rather than just constantly addressing behaviors, which is what, when I started in this field, you would do with little kids and adolescents, just constantly doing behavior modification. And, and, but little kids' brains aren't wired yet for some of that bigger, deeper thinking stuff of values and meaning and purpose. And so working with adults, when I switched to working specifically with adults 2008, is a different mindset 
in terms of uh, their ability to think at deeper levels. And because people are drain-damaged, drain they sometimes can't think as deeply as they want to, or they want to spend yeah. all their time thinking about deep things like Spinoza and Descartes and all that kind of stuff. But it, we need to focus more on, hey, what's for breakfast? What's for lunch? We should brush our teeth. We should get some exercise every day rather than getting stuck in what I think are deep thinking kind of things, right? Well, that's, that's the old saying of, uh, what is it, you... You revert back to the age mentally you were when you first started drinking for somebody, right? Like, right, or, or using substances, yeah. right? I, I become, uh, I have arrested development. It's not just a good TV show on Netflix, right? It's an actual uh, neurological and biological thing that happens, but it shows up in terms of our behaviors, and then all of a sudden everybody's then judging us psychologically as, well, there's a bad person or an immature person or you know somebody you don't want to have around. Rather than, again, trauma-informed lenses, there's a person who's stuck because of some sort of trauma that happened. And using substances is going to be traumatic on your brain because it affects your brain's ability to develop. So that's where sometimes, right, we need people who are in front of us who are coaches and mentors to be our frontal lobes to help us to slow down and think or stop and think again because one of the things we say in my groups is first thought wrong. First thought wrong, it's not always wrong, but I act as if because my frontal lobes aren't necessarily always engaging. Sometimes I'm being driven by my autonomic nervous system, right, which is stimulus reaction, or I'm being driven by my midbrain, which is emotions, which just say go, 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 rather than stop and wait. How is this going to affect other people, right? What's well, my emotional intelligence uh piece of my brain say about this thought. And if it doesn't work the way I want it to, then I check in with my friends like Brad and Austin and say, hey, I'm having this thought. What do you think? And I get their feedback and I have to be open to feedback in that process as well. Well, that's more Kevin McCauley thought process too, right? Like prefrontal cortex decision-making, non-developed portion of your brain. Is that what you're, where you're getting at with it? Yep. Yeah. And again, trauma is, is a, getting me running on my lower brain mechanisms. The brain stem, we call it the reptilian brain. Reptilian brain is all about survival, right? Uh, I just need food. I need shelter. I, I, need, uh, I need to fornicate just to keep the species going. I'm not having sex for fun. I'm just like doing my duty mm -hmm. kind of stuff, right? Or I'm being run by my midbrain where I'm looking to fornicate all I can because I think that's how that's going to make me happy. Or I'm looking for someone or something out here to make me happy rather than being in my frontal lobes and realizing that happiness is really delayed gratification. Happiness comes from long-term relationships. Happiness comes from the wonder and awe of life rather than the shock and awe of life that my midbrain, my hedonic set point, is always looking for. Um, and, and so, yeah, that's what we're doing. A lot of this brain kind of stuff of trying to get people back in their frontal lobes through mindfulness, through meditation, through play, through uh, exercises of writing and problem solving so that they can get that human part of their brain back online rather than being driven by their animal parts of their brain, the monkey, the mammal, the mammalian, or the, the reptile, the reptilian part of the brain. Let's go back to uh, let, let me recenter us here a little bit on on uh, because because I want to again I want to it's a fascinating conversation and I want to recenter us on this recreational therapy road that we were on. So Chateau has uh, several different um, kind of uh, recreational events 
Workshops. Uh, workshops. Yeah, that's a better term. Uh, several different workshops uh, that, uh, can you go into a little bit more detail? And, and one specifically is based upon a book, but but just kind of uh, open-ended some of these workshops. Um, tell us a little bit of, about some of them or even the Night in Rusty Armor, if you want to dive into that one. Um, theoretically, how do they work? What's the goal? What's the intention? Uh, what's success? Um, you know, tell us a little bit about that because these are not normal. Uh, I mean, these are for a guy like me coming in here. I'm like, holy kit, what in the hell is going on? Like, <laughs> well, I, don't, I don't know what just happened, but that was amazing. Yeah, no pressure, but they are. It, the Nine Rusty Armor is quasi famous now. There's been enough people across the it's country pretty famous. Yeah, that have experienced it and spread the word yeah. about it. We even had the gal from Center of Change come by and ask if you're still running that workshop. So mm-hmm. obviously you've been doing it for a while. Yeah. Well, it, it it comes from, again, old adolescent treatment uh, model with some, some friends who developed these workshops working with adolescent boys. The book is The Night in Rusty Armor by Robert Fisher, which just becomes the the spine uh, of the the hero's journey. And then we... We flesh that out. Um, the Night and Rusty Armor workshop that we do, number one, is based on a 48-hour workshop that we used to do uh, in uh, Quino Bay, Mexico a long time ago, adolescent treatment with American and English-speaking kids, and we boiled it down to six hours here. So we leave the, the familiar environment, we go to a, a, a different spot, and we go through the process of experiencing uh, play and getting into our bodies, talking about communication, um, and modeling using sculpting, which is a part of um, psychodrama. Um, And then we uh, include writing and music and movement in all of those kinds of things. Um, Yeah, some people have come here, and that's their first or second day, and they leave the workshop going, is this what every day is like here? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like, no, brah, it's all good. Uh, Don't worry about it. because, it, it, again, it can be, I jokingly say, I'm the traumatizing counselor. I'm going to take you into the workshop, and it's going to be traumatic because we're going to pull scabs. I'm going to ask you to experience things you maybe don't want to experience to get uncomfortable. And then we'll come back, and I say, you know, and then the trauma-informed counselors will help you put things back together. But the metaphor is getting out of my armor, and the, the knight can't get out of the armor on his own, so he has to go through this process of leaving his family and looking for... Uh, a mentor to take him through the process, and then he goes to the woods where he meets his mentor. Tears from real feelings will release you from a, your armor, is a quote from the book. And so people are encouraged to cry, and people may not cry, uh, and that's okay. But you know that's part of the the healing. Uh, John Gray says, "What you feel, you can heal." Uh, so we want to let people have their feelings and their emotions. As through that process, we start to peel off the armor. Um, little bit by little bit. The goal being to identify the lies, the negative beliefs that become the rust that lock the armor in. The shame that says I'm not good enough, not smart enough. Because of some of my behaviors, I'm a monster, I'm unforgivable. Uh, Beliefs that we have that keep us locked in our armor and identifying those and making those explicit and externalizing them and then hopefully flipping the script and identifying what's the truth about the person inside the armor, the truth about who I really am. I'm innocent. I'm lovable. I'm worthy. I am enough rather than the shame that says I'm not good enough. 
And so that's the, that's the path that we're on. It's called the path of truth and trying to move from the lies that lock us in the armor to the truth that can set us free. So would you would you compare to that to maybe some inner child work? I've always wanted to ask you that question because a lot of those negative beliefs and a lot of those those things that we have built throughout our entire life start from things like the advanced childhood experiences and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, for for sure, it, it's it's some inner child kind of work, and we do non dominant uh, artwork to yeah. access the inner child. We ask you to open up and let your heart be vulnerable. We stand in an open body position rather than the sculpted negative positions uh, where we're guarded and defensive. And so it is. It's learning to heal and make it safe for the little child. We, 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 we write a letter from the little to the big. What does the little need to remind the big about what's true and what's most important? And we write a letter from the big to the little. What does the big need to tell the little uh, that's going to help them in, in their journey. If there was some parallel universe and I could put that letter in the mail to them, you know, how would I want to tell them, be ready, stay true to yourself, remember who you are, that you're innocent, you're carefree, you're lovable, rather than the beliefs that you take on of you're a monster, you're unlovable, you're not good enough. And so maybe even as a kid or an adolescent, you start looking for the exits, you start self-medicating, you start to put the armor on even as a child. And that's where the adverse childhood experiences survey is, is so helpful for people to see that sometimes my trauma is not just after the age of 18, but some stuff that happened in my life that I've never really considered that started me putting the armor on in the first place. Again, that the question in the book is, you, didn't, you weren't born with that armor on, you chose to put it on, have you ever asked yourself why? And the answer is, oh, of course, you were so afraid that's why you put the armor on, mm -hmm. to protect yourself, to protect that little boy, that little girl who was afraid of being hurt, abandoned, neglected, or abused like we may have been as children. And not everyone has a high ACEs score, but most people have at least a one on the ACEs. So if you're if you're Chateau client, if you're coming in uh, and, and needing help, you're a, you're a captive audience. Uh, you're... you're, you're regulated, delegated to being given this opportunity. Uh, I think it's, um, you know, you can check out on some levels if you feel like it's not, it's all willing participants, but it's strongly encouraged. But the, the listeners, not all listeners uh, to our podcast, Stacy, are, are not all going to be Chateau clients. So if we sit here and have a conversation, I'm intrigued by the negative narrative that you speak of, that these inner voices that we tell ourselves, these these oftentimes lies of I'm not worthy or uh, based upon shame or hurt or pain or trauma or, you know, fear, you know, the list is long of what drives that. I don't know, maybe it's not that long to you, but the... But the negative narrative, so if, so for listeners out here who are not going to experience, you know, a workshop uh, exercise in humanity like what you're talking about, what would be your advice to them on challenging this negative narrative of saying, hey, I'm, I say this about myself. I know it's not true. Some days, most days I believe it. Most days, you know, I'm, I'm fat or I'm not worthy or I'm, you know, whatever, fill in the blank of that ugly. Right. How could a person approach that if not dive into doing something about that? Most people are going to need the help of a coach or a counselor mm -hmm. to help them in doing that. 
which again against, goes against our first responder culture of asking for help. I bring the help, right? I, That's right. I served in Afghanistan, not me personally, but people say I served in Afghanistan and Iraq. I bring the help. I don't get help. And so we have to be willing to, to get help. The other piece is I have to be willing to do my own inner work, which might mean that I'm, I'm journaling and I'm identifying these negative beliefs. And I may not know what they are, and so I may get a book like Vander Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score and start to understand more about these kinds of things that where I put my armor on and how it gets locked in. And by journaling, I can externalize it. I can use art. I can use music as ways to express those kinds of things as well. We, we heal where we hurt, Stephen Hayes says. And, and so maybe I find healing by telling my story through music or through drama or through art. Uh, Carl Jung, his red book, has all of his inner work. And inside, as he was doing his inner work, he met a guide. He didn't have anybody out here to guide him, but internally he ran into the trainer of, uh, of Hercules. I can't think of his name right now. But he's just like, who are you? And the inner voice is like, well, I'm your guide. I'm going to take you on, on, this, on this guide. So you, you may do inner work. Uh, again, but I, I need somebody to help me to find a context, and maybe that's books, maybe that's podcasts, uh, maybe, again, it's a coach or a mentor who's going to help me uh, uh, through that process. But I have to be willing to, to, to want to stay alive, to stay awake and aware enough to start to do this kind of work so that I can play well with others, so that I can take appropriate risks. I can enjoy a sunset I can enjoy being in a room with other people rather than always be hypervigilant, always be looking for the exit, always having my hand near my weapon or where my weapon used to be because I don't carry my weapon anymore. And again, that's my PTS that's going on. And I have to be willing to say, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm a human being trying to sort out my experiences and finding my guides and teachers along the way. And it might be in literature, it might be in art, it might be, you know, in the human connection of having someone I'm in rapport with and can trust with my secrets and my fears uh, and my shames. And so there's, there's lot, lots of paths. That's one of the things that's nice about Chateau is we're presented with lots of paths. Uh, Carlos Castaneda talks about it in the Don Juan books, finding a path with heart. How do I find the right path? Does this path have a heart? And if it does have a heart then I pursue it. If I find it doesn't have a heart, then I abandon it and I find a new path. And so there's lots of different paths. Um, and it might be through recreation. It might be through um, being of service to others in different ways than I have been in the past. But it's, again, finding the, the meaning and purpose of my existence in my life. What's my why for getting up and dressing up and showing up every day rather than just getting up and checking out and dissociating in whatever way I check out and dissociate. I think Stacy just hit on a, a really common thread and theme, right? Obviously the name of the podcast in itself, Brent, Ben talked about it, you know, the last podcast we did. The reality is, is a majority of people that we deal with are attempting to fight their battle by themselves. That, that is a reality, right? Absolutely. And it, at, at its very least, feel like they're alone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. is that where you... So, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. 100%. 100%. 
Yeah. yeah. And that's that's the common thread, though, through everything is, sure. is connection. We talked about group therapy. It was finding, you know, solace with other people that have gone through the same thing. That is the common thread for people that are out there struggling, looking for something. They, they're attempting to do it alone. Well, and there's a lot of great opportunities to to use that um, that maybe excuses is not the appropriate word, but use that line of thought as a as a bailout. Like this is me and only me. It's only going to be a me in this. I'm going to have to take care. I'm going to have to keep my armor on. I'm going to have to keep my defenses up. I don't care if I am hyper vigilant. I don't care if I. It, this is this is life. I succumb to the reality that this is the way existence is going to be from now on. And we tell ourselves that's the truth, but that's the lie that we've mm-hmm. been told, right. right, in literature and even in science of Darwin's survival of the fittest. Right? Survival of the fittest is is about lions and gorillas. Neither no, Nobody in this room is a lion or a gorilla, although we sometimes like to think we are, right? <laughs> the reality is we have to rely on each other rather than survival of the fittest. And research is showing that that stress hormones are directing us to get help, to reach out. And again, where we're the ones who give the help, we have to be willing to do the opposite. I have to be willing to reach out and get the help. Loneliness is one of the core existential factors that Yalom talks about in terms of trying to figure out our meaning and purpose in life. How do I deal with the fact that I probably will die alone? Is this where the hurt people hurt people phrase comes the miners that it, it, it could it could be, but but I can be lonely, but I'm not hurting people. Yeah. Right? I, I may still just be taking care of myself, but I'm not doing things that hurt other people. Because mm. that's the story no. I tell myself. I'm not hurting anybody but myself, right. but I am. I can still be dealing with my loneliness. We can be sitting in a crowd of sixty thousand people watching a football game together, but I can still feel lonely. Because yeah. right. it's part of my existential factors. What is the meaning and purpose of existence? These are those d- deeper questions you can get to as you get further along in the recovery process. But it's estimated that one in four people are feeling lonely right now. And so how do we reach out? How do we take responsibility for our lives and ask for the help we need? And one of the important factors, there's a, a great research study from Harvard, 75, now maybe 85 years long, a longitudinal study of the key component of happiness is quality long-term relationships. It's not about the boat, the jet skis. It's not about trading my 40 in for 220s. It's not about the six-pack. It's not about my degrees and my salary. It's about quality long-term relationships. That connection's coming up again. Yep. And so where do I make those? How do I find those? And if I'm retiring from my career, a lot of times that's where my friends and my connections are is through work, and then I'm away from work, and then the loneliness factor is compounded. And that's where alcohol and drugs becomes the attachment because it works every time. It picks up my call every time. It responds to my needs every time. Doesn't fail. Right? It, it's, it's better than God because it answers my prayers right away, mm-hmm. right? And so I've, I've got to find these other healthy connections, these other ways of staying engaged with family, friends, community, whatever it is, that helps me to know I'm not alone, even if I'm struggling with that, one of those core components of existential existence of loneliness. I don't think that that's a common, I don't think that's common knowledge, that study or, or that fact, because if you look at everything going on, I mean, we're going through probably one of the biggest mental health crises in our history, right? Mm-hmm. And the majority of people uh, that are struggling with that are doing the exact opposite, 
whether it is social media or it is a new boat or it is a new truck or it is a new job, it, it's not centered in relationship building. Right. It's about instant gratification. Yeah. If you want to be happy, do this, do that, rather than delayed gratification, rather than, you know, this is what gives my life meaning and purpose, rather than my ego that says, do this, do that. And again, we live in a society that, that, that advertises, hey, you shouldn't be uncomfortable. We're all going to be uncomfortable. That's a fact of life. Uh, you know, life is suffering. It's the first of the four noble truths. Our suffering comes from our attachments that it shouldn't be that way, and that creates addictions to try and make those things go away. And so, you know, it, it, it's a process, and how do I find balance in if I need solitude and serenity and still have connection? How do I do that in a healthy way? And again, it's not about quantity. I've got 500 friends on Facebook, not me personally, but that's what people might say, but I don't have two or three quality friends mm -hmm. who I meet face-to-face -face with and have a cup of coffee or go on walk and talks with or who I can trust with my my deepest, darkest secrets. Well, I think that's that's the that habit of connection and, and getting yourself outside of your comfort zone to go spend some quality time with a friend. I think that's I think we've gotten out of the habit of that. And what cued me there was that social media piece. It's it's become so easy to disengage but still feel like you're connected and it's a false it's that's a lie. Yep. That's that's a that's one of the foremost lies on the table in our society right now. I believe it which is social media saying, "Oh yeah, you have 500 friends." But do you really have 500 friends? Yeah. And all I'm really doing is comparative thinking and saying, well, look how much better Brad's life is than mine. Look how much better Austin's life is than mine. And it creates the anxiety of FOMO, fear Which of missing out. Which is not true. And instead, I just create a facade. I put another piece of armor on. That's my, my front of my social life. When behind, you know, the picture doesn't match the, mm. the presentation sure. kind of stuff. And, and so sometimes I need to get away from social media. Sometimes that can be good to stay connected to family and friends who are far away. And sometimes it just becomes another overwhelming piece. So I need that human connection. And it, it might be second or, or just two dimensions of face-to-face -face on FaceTime or Zoom. And it might be sitting and really being uh, with humans. And, you know, the pandemic is a real thing. We all lost human connections. Yeah, We all lost friends and family members. And we're still denying that that was a reality rather than talking about, hey, this was a tough, we, it's been a tough, you know, 60 years for me, six or seven years for most people, <laughs> whatever it's been, and we got to be willing and having space to talk about it. There's a recent research study that more and more men are depressed because we're not having that sense of connection. We're judging that we don't measure up by the standards that are set in the media. And as men... Right, we attempt suicide less than women, but we're more likely to complete because we use more lethal means. Mm -hmm. And so we need to, especially men. Right, I don't want to talk about it. We need to be talking about it, sure. and the feminine as well. We need to be talking about these things so that we don't accidentally complete, right, or intentionally complete, because that's the harsh reality that we're dealing with life and death situations. Uh, rather than just the worried well. Well, I don't think we can. I don't think we can uh, close any better than that. I think uh, you know your connection there, Austin, with uh, no one fights alone with this entire concept. But I, I do want to give Stacy the kind of the final opportunity to close us out here. 
because this is a such a great topic of loneliness or being alone and and how dangerous it is and if there's it made just two or three specific things that you would recommend saying hey here's something you should be doing for yourself to take care of yourself to combat loneliness to make sure that you're uh, checking in with somebody you know what what would be those Stacy's stock stocking two to three tips of making sure you're taking good care of yourself and you're not fighting this battle alone find your tribe number one your tribe in substance uh, use disorder counseling that's often uh, in the the rooms of recovery 12-step culture it, it, it's going to be somewhere it might be at the dojo it might be at the gym pickleball um, it might be pickleball <laughs> which is a great social <laughs> milieu um, it might be finding some kind of a men's or a, a women's support group it might be a you know a support group for people who are the end of their careers, the end of their marriage, going through life transitions. I got to get out of my armor and out of my shell and find a tribe. Number two is really practice good self-care. Remember that you are worth it in terms of feeding yourself, getting healthy sleep, turning off the screens and the messages of I'm not good enough and taking care of myself because I'm worth it, which can include simple things just like brushing and flossing, going to the doctor and dentist, you know, getting my exams done so that I'm taking care of my body. Because I take care of my body, then I can deal with the other uncertainties of life that show up. So have a tribe, practice good self-care, and then take time to play. Take time to do healthy play. It might be up here in Utah, my friends, they go out and they do fishing. That sounds really boring to me, right? But for other people... That's their happy spot is catching a big 18-inch rainbow trout, right, and holding it in their hands and then unhooking it and letting it go, taking time to hike and to bike, to spend time in nature. Those are some of those big things to do. Play, practice good self-care, find your tribe wherever your tribe might be. Stacy, thanks for coming by and visiting with us. We really appreciate you coming. I'm glad I found you guys. I was lost for like 10 minutes. We were going to leave you outside. Some people would say lost forever. Chateau Health and Wellness is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's first responder resiliency program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Health and Wellness is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information or to speak to a representative, go to ChateauRecovery.com or call 888-507-5031.